When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined as ever by commissioning editor and admirer of the cheese bell, Thea Lenarduzzi. The fact that you have been mining my Twitter feed actually feeds in quite nicely to the theme. It does, and I wish that was why I was, I'd done it. And it does look like I'd done it deliberately, but I was looking at your Twitter feed and I saw you tweeting about a cheese bell and I thought I'd mention it. But it does make me wonder whether we're all being too careless of our own personal data. What is a cheese bell, first of uh, all? A cheese bell. Well, I have, um, I have to thank Dara Goldstein for my introduction to the cheese bell and her new magazine, Cured, which has this... A marvelous array of cheese bells. What is uh, a cheese and bell? So they, they 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 were kind of like bell-shaped dishes that were used to encase enclose the cheese as it was then presented on the table. And they were very popular in the tw- early twentieth century. Okay, okay. So your affection is, your affection is real. <laughs> I wouldn't own one myself. I don't think actually. Okay, it's it, too much clutter. Okay, but we've learned something about oversharing on Twitter. Yes, also, <laughs> which is as you say not irrelevant because coming up on the show this week, Jennifer Howard has reviewed several books on the development of the internet into a sort of badlands in which data-hungry governments, corporations and thieves seek to feast on our carelessly guarded remnants. Including cheese bells. Including cheese bells. <laughs> she'll explain why we should all probably be rather more afraid of going online. Uh, sadly, in keeping with the pessimism about modernity will be our discussion about torture. Rebecca Lamov has reviewed two books. One, a chilling account of a man who survived Guantanamo Bay. The other, a neurological investigation into the effects of torture on the mind. We shall then head for the more liberating uplands of Scandinavia. Tom Shippey will join us to debate whether Scandi living is indeed a recipe for human happiness. Warning, Thea may mention Hugger. Hugger? Hugger. I hadn't heard of it until about a month ago. Now I see it everywhere. It's one of those things. But first of all, here's a couple of propositions for you. The internet is the greatest of all modern inventions, eliminating distance and widening the scope for global communication and the exchange of ideas on an unprecedented scale. The internet is the blight of modern existence, a place in which private information is stolen and sold and news is adulterated and fraudulently manufactured, a playground for vileness and bullying and an open invitation for secret state intervention. The internet is, of course, both of those things. Indeed, it is the internet that has enabled Thea and I to talk to you from a dingy studio in the heart of London Bridge, which may be the very definition of a mixed blessing. Jennifer Howard has reviewed four books which, taken together, provide a fairly baleful account of where we currently are in relation to the internet. Their titles, in fact, act as a pretty good syncopated summary of their position. Future crimes, splinternet, forging communities and data love. 
According to Jennifer, in this post-factual truth-averse era, many of the destinations that draw us online have become unsafe spaces, hostile and treacherous, where hatefulness and fake news prevail and our surveillance is omnipresent. The web has changed and it has changed us. So thanks for cheering us up. Uh, Jennifer joins Thea and me now. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Stig. How are you? Very good, thank you. Let's start with the issue of personal data because it's kind of the first half or maybe even more than that of your piece sort of touches on this is it really a sort of dystopian world out there of theft and betrayal and if so who are the villains well i guess who who aren't the villains might be a good question we are um, it certainly you mentioned badlands as as a as a word to describe the internet now and that certainly is how it feels these days uh, when we have every day bringing us news of yet another data breach out of operation, yet another set of possibly government-enabled um, hacks uh, in- influencing elections. I think we don't we we have our eye on this these large these big picture breaches and and difficult dangers. Um, meanwhile, we are while we're surfing the internet, we're looking at you know we're reading about fake news. We're also leaving a data trail everywhere we go. And there are a lot of people out there and entities out there ready to to collect and pounce on that data. Uh, and I think most of us don't realize just how large a data trail we're leaving. And what, what sort of thing are you talking about there? Because I think that's right. I mean, I don't think any of us, I certainly don't really think about myself in terms of data that I, that I leave. What sort of thing are you talking about? Well, anytime you visit a website, you know, you, you leave a trace unless you take precautions not to. Of course, uh, sites like Facebook and you mentioned Twitter and uh, the cheese bell that, that Thea loves. This, uh, <laughs> we, uh, you know, it, it, it's lovely to share. It's, it, it's what draws us online. We want to share knowledge. We want to share experiences, our photographs, our impressions, our opinions. And it seems very harmless. But you know, you're putting these things out there in public view. You're giving your own personal data creation thoughts to corporations that, that while they may seem very friendly, like Facebook, and Facebook, I love Facebook, I'm on it a lot. Um, it, it provides a great service, but it is also a business, and you are its uh, its product. I mean, we are collecting, we are giving it content that it can then repackage, sell to advertisers. Um, we don't realize this, the, the very human impulse to share also puts us at risk. I'm not saying we shouldn't share. I think it's important to do it, but to just to be more mindful of of what who who might be out there witnessing what you're sharing, and the idea that there is true digital privacy is is perhaps an illusion. Well, and um, perhaps one of the most problematic relationships at the heart of all of this is the the new relationship between the state. I mean, ostensibly, the state is it could could be portrayed as as one of the villains because. You know, there's this new aggressive antagonism between individuals and the state, something that was once there to protect us is now something that is a threat to our privacy. I think that's right. Oh, I wonder, you know, I think if you talk to a historian here, she might say that that states have always surveilled uh, in one way or another. As long as we've had states, we've had had elements within those states that, that are very concerned with what the citizenry is doing and, and have a, some interest in either controlling or monitoring it. Of course, we also, you know, in the post 9-11 era, um, many people want some state surveillance because they think it will make them safer. And I don't know, maybe it does. Um, we also, as, thanks to Edward Snowden uh, and, and other, other uh, whistleblowers, we now know the extent to which the state would like to surveil. I was going to say, I wonder how much people actually care about this because it's in a funny way when I don't know how much people think about it in the real world where if someone says, yeah, the government might be looking at your browser history or they might be able to access to the email data if not the emails themselves. But mm-hmm. the, the corollary of that is at some point they are going to stop a terror cell in its tracks, not because they're looking at you, because they're looking so widely. 
I wonder how many people would actually say, you know, that's a trade-off I'm willing to I'm willing to make. Well, there's that very common platitude, isn't there? Oh, well, if you've not got anything to hide, what's what's the problem? But that's not really what's at stake. No, I think I think it is a, a you know a, a very deep-rooted, almost invisible struggle struggle over what privacy even means today. Can we exist online in anything like a truly private way? There, there may be some ways. I mean, there's the, the dark web, which, which you know, which all sorts of uh, illicit activities take place that we never, most of us never see. It's not like I, I wake up in the morning and there's a government agent standing behind, you know, behind me looking no. at my email. Um, I don't see, I don't hear uh, any kind of surveillance that might be happening. And what we don't see, we tend to, to assume isn't even happening. And that's the thing. And I think the level at which we talk about it and care about it, I, it's obviously completely comprehensible. But I just wonder in the, the level at which it actually impacts people's lives. It's one of those things when you talk about the freedom of, freedom of speech, for example, most people outside of a certain group of people who think about it don't really care about the principle of freedom of speech because they kind of take it for granted. Most people don't care about intrusions into their privacy by the state because they kind of assume the state is probably doing it anyway and they don't want to live in a city which could be blown up at any point. That's true. I, th- I think there is certainly a lot of um, a lot of fear out, out there when, when people stop and think about it and maybe, maybe on some level they feel safer because the government is surveilling. I think that, that idea that if you don't have anything to hide, you shouldn't worry is, is a very dangerous one mm-hmm. because it allows... It gives a lot. It gives carte blanche to a government to do whatever the heck it pleases. Mm. And in the UK, we've just seen some big developments in that direction. I think Snowden has said that mm-hmm. we're going to be the most surveilled. Yeah, well, a snooper's charter has been approved by yeah. Parliament. But yet again, this is my point, though. That is not being. There are people objecting to mm. it, but that is not in the teeth of public outcry. Mm. It is a, a Conservative government with a relatively small majority is pushing it through. Because it feels confident that people out in the country are not going to say, mm. that's a key issue for me, which 100, is kind of 000, interesting. 100,000 signatures really is, is small fry. In. Well, for 60, yeah, million, 60 exactly. 70 million people in the country. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a bit about Facebook uh, um, again, Jennifer. We're talking about, because there's the issue of privacy, which is uh, very important. There's this new issue of sort of fake news and misinformation. And mm. uh, you referred to this, and I thought this was fascinating. BuzzFeed analysed Facebook trending stories in the run-up to the American election. And for the first time, they found that fake stories outperformed actual ones. And the top two shared stories ahead of the election were these two. Pope Francis shocks the world, endorses Donald Trump for president, releases statement, and WikiLeaks confirms Hillary sold weapons to ISIS, then drops another bombshell. So they're the two (laughs) most successful stories, both of which are entirely made up. Now, is this something do you think we should worry about? Because Facebook are not going to worry about it. They're going to pretend to worry about that. But Facebook want to be a publisher with none of the responsibilities of being a publisher. That's their whole business model is based on that. So they're not going to really respond to it. How much is this a new phenomenon? We should worry about it, do you think? I think we need to worry enormously. Uh, this worries me even more than government surveillance, which I think we need to keep an eye on. But the, the, what you're talking about is a huge problem for democracy for anything like privacy, but just the basic uh, lack of information literacy um, or the, the internet enables fast clicking, fast sharing, which is one of its beauties, um, particularly if you're a journalist or writer, you want to share your ideas, get them out there. But people don't stop and, and you know, okay, well, you know, I'll click on that, I'll read that. Oh, that's that's fascinating. I'll share this. I won't even stop to think about where what source it's coming from. Um, is it well reported? Is it a new source that I can trust? Do I even care if it's if it's true or not? Because it's so lurid um, that, that, you know, my Facebook page will light up with wows and likes. And then you've ended up with a president 
who embodies that himself, who actually does it. So he will tweet something that he knows is not true with a jolly exclamation mark. And in, in some ways, he's a sort of embodiment of this. If you have enough confidence and front, you can really get away with anything. You can. I mean, I, I live in Washington. I'd like to apologize to you for electing um, electing this man. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, it, it, it is, um, it'll be very interesting to see how much that culture of say anything, do anything, um, really translates into the institutions that we have. And does he, uh, d- does the, the worldview he represents, will it actually uh, change those institutions or, or are the institutions robust enough to, you know, to, to correct um, misrepresent- misrepresentations, lies, the sort of hatefulness that collects around um, around much of this commentary? Because the, the fake news thing is in my mind is quite similar to the echo chamber effect that we see because what those what both of those phenomenons are doing is appealing to our they're indulging our confirmation bias they're giving us news that we want to read and then in the echo chamber effect of facebook and twitter they're they're validating our own opinions and the distortive effect of that i mean it really what's happened is we used to think that the virtual world was one world and the real world in inverted commas was another whereas fake news and the echo chamber effect go to show that the two have completely merged and one affects the other I think that's quite right. And we, um, I mean, in, in some ways, this is all, all of these horrors are an invitation to take a step back and look at how we are interacting with technology, how we interact, interact with each other through technology. Um, we have allowed, allowed things to become so rapid, rapid pace, and the technology we have enables that. Um, Twitter and Facebook, you know, I can always be on my phone. I can be reading stories while I'm on the go, which is not necessarily an ideal time to stop and reflect on what I'm reading. And I really, if there's anything good that's going to come out of this uh, horror show that we're witnessing now, I think it will be maybe a sense to say, or t- an opportunity to say, look, maybe we've gone too far with this. We need to figure out better ways to control online or you know, uh, protect people from online abuse. We need to put the phone down sometimes, take a step back. We well, that to me, to, I think, um, the, I mean, we'll have to leave it here, uh, Jennifer, but that seems to me like an interesting mm. point. Do you think that at some point there'll be in this backlash where we'll all want to go and live in tiny huts with no with no no I, I know now that when my wife books holiday she books a place without wi-fi deliberately to get me off my phone and my emails um and rightly so and i kind of I, I say this in a little introductory piece i write for the paper this week we're having this gigantic social experiment which we're conducting in real time with this intrusion of technology and we have no concept of what it means for our mental health for our sense of self our inward and outward personas and all of those things and at some point do you think there may be a backlash where we say we have to spend two days a week offline or something like that as a way of a way of somehow keeping us collective sanity well it, it it might it might come to that but i i actually am more of a techno optimist in the sense that i don't think we can or should just throw away our technology um we, we've come too far for that i think we need to recover the the amazing potentials of the inter- internet um 10 years ago when twitter started it was fun it was fascinating it was a great way to find new people new ideas it can still be that and i think we have to to reclaim that from the trolls the misogynists the racists the you know the abusers the surveillers um, but but we can't and the we can find elect. a better way to live with it <laughs> Sadly. But there we go. Jennifer, it's a great piece. Uh, thank you so much for doing it. Uh, and it's uh, incredibly oh, timely you. and it's a real uh, pleasure to speak to you about it. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thank Thanks, you. Jennifer. Yeah. And, and it raises so many more questions than we could possibly have covered in the 10, 15 minutes that we've just had. No, it's, uh, and cause I do think that so much of our life, if you pause to think about it, is played out mm. in this in- environment. And the echo chamber point you make really interests me because in somehow way, if you're not on Twitter, if you're if you're not on Facebook, if you completely shield yourself from the world, 
of technology, you're in a different type of echo chamber. So mm. one of the virtues of the internet was to say there is a world elsewhere. Look at look and see its massive proliferation. So there must be an example of the echo chamber opening out at some point. It just feels like it's closing in again. Yeah. I mean well that's I think that's that's what I was getting at is that I think Facebook Facebook are pandering to our existing psychologies, this desire to, to be surrounded by our likeness. But it's whether they have a duty to protect us from ourselves or just not to exploit us. And it's the latter that, I mean, that really gets me. But they're not... I mean, what I find fascinating about Facebook is they are very deliberately saying, we are not a publisher, we are yeah. a platform. We don't want any of the responsibility. And, of course, what they're doing to the media generally, and who's going to cry for the media, I understand that. They've destroyed their business model. Like a third of all mm -hmm. advertising now goes to Facebook, which used to go to professional media entities employing people. What are Facebook going to do when the content that they use disappears? You're only going to be left with fake news because mm -hmm. the real news can't make any money mm -hmm. anymore and no one is going to be making the real mm -hmm. news. So Facebook itself is going to potentially, uh, maybe they won't regard it in this way, are they, going to, are they going to sword off the branch that they're sitting on by saying, all the, that you guys out there making journalism, mm -hmm. we're taking all your money. Mm -hmm. What are they going to be? What are people going to be sharing if there's no journalistic content to share? Pictures of cats and themselves and cats. I do like a picture of a cat. <laughs> um, I'm not on Facebook, so I'm slightly biased. No, I'm on Twitter, but not Facebook. Yeah, I don't have enough friends. I'm friend. sort of faintly, remotely, sometimes on on Twitter, but just for cheese bells. Clearly, just cheese so. bell, no, exactly. <laughs> I don't think this, this cheese bell is becoming a thing. Maybe for Christmas we should have a have a have a. Cheese well, I did bell. say I was going to buy them for all of my all of my friends and members of my family. So can you extend that to? I, I'll get you one as okay, well. Thank you very much. If I possibly in, can. Indeed, in, in, no, so it's, it's, it's a really important piece. This and it connects to another piece that we've got in the paper this week because we have this new president-elect in America as we've just been discussing and one of the many troubling opinions he professed before the election was a willingness to consider torture as a valid interrogation tactic. He praised waterboarding famously on the campaign trail. His vice president has said, we're going to have a president again who will never say what we'll never do. Everything is possible. His predecessor had been forced to concede that torture, sadly, is not un-American. President Bush insisted wrongly in 2007 that we don't torture. In 2013, President Obama conceded that we tortured some folk. And surveys show, as our review by Rebecca Lemov says, that a high proportion of Americans are, quotes, OK with torture. So how exactly have we got here? Uh, Rebecca's reviewed two grimly fascinating books on the subject, Why Torture Doesn't Work by Shane O'Mara and Guantanamo Diary by Mohamedou Ould Slahi. And she joins Thea and me now. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Uh, let's start with the first of those books, if we may, um, because it's really the neuroscientific lessons that can be deduced about torture. Uh, what are those lessons and, and how do they get them, bearing in mind that there's no direct research on tortured people at any point? Omera has been very uh, resourceful, I think, in writing a book about torture based on neuroscientific evidence where there can really be no evidence since you can't put a, a detainee who's undergoing uh, enhanced interrogation within an fMRI machine. So as an alternative, he's called and pulled together a whole range of neuroscientific studies on what happens to people under stress, not only the person undergoing stress, but the person who might be imposing stressful uh, conditions on someone else. And he's discovered, perhaps not surprisingly, that this is in immensely destructive to human functioning. And therefore, he deduces that it 
any information that's derived from this would be utterly um, unreliable. I was reading up a little bit about the UK and, and here in, in 2005 there was this unanimous uh, law lord's judgment um, and that said that torture and its fruits could not be used in court but that the information thus obtained could be used by the British police and security services um, as it would be ludicrous, this is a quote, as it would be ludicrous for them to disregard information about a ticking bomb even if it had been procured by torture. Doesn't this effectively place a greyness or an outright contradiction around around the use of uh, the validity of information that is extracted by torture. I think that's true. I think uh, legally the evidence is not admissible in court, and yet um, it's often evidence that is procured through torture is often taken to uh, to continue or to to sort of support its continued use, at least among those who already who already do support it. So the, I think there are layers and levels of catch-22s and yeah. double binds within this entire regime. And the assumption there, in, in the thing that Piers just talked about, this ticking bomb notion, is that the information will be true, which is the thing that you say again, mm. Re- Rebecca, which is, it, it seems to me that in if you're a state that considers practising torture, your underlying assumption is you're going to get accurate information. Exactly. Well, the ticking time bomb has been a really powerful scenario that it's almost like a thought experiment because there are very few uh, actual conditions under which this applies. And if a valuable detainee was apprehended, then people would change their tactical plans, likely, in, in, in expecting that the information would be, you know, would suddenly be available. So yeah. really, ticking time bomb doesn't apply, but it seems to be very powerful in convincing people that there might be such scenarios, as sort of like as a public relations anecdote. Well, it's interesting as well, in so, insofar as what it, what it tells us about the psychology of the crowd or of, or of public opinion. I mean, it's, it's an interesting area because the ticking time bomb scenario people were asked whether they would think that it was okay to 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 torture someone if they thought that they would extract truthful information and thereby save uh, hundreds of lives uh, from this this hypothetical bomb and survey seems to suggest that there's a correlation between people who live in in areas or countries that are very heavily targeted by terrorists um, and they you know such as Israel or India and they were more likely to say yes it's okay to use torture as are the staunchly religious uh, people are more likely to say yes. Yeah, which is which is baffling. But you you wonder whether it, there's some correlation between people who who tend to believe that life is a struggle between you know good and evil, light and light yeah. and dark. But my point was, I mean, doesn't this sort of show how easy it is to reshape our moral codes in relation to torture? And you know, given that we're living in this climate of the so-called climate of terror, in which we're surrounded by media telling us that we're under threat at all times, uh, you know, amplifying those threats, isn't it likely that we're we're going to become ever more accepting of torture. That, that does seem to be happening, and that is one of the. I don't know. It was very remarkable to me that this that uh, this such a huge uh, sea change is underway, and you can actually kind of watch it happening. Whereas about three or four years ago, um, most Americans, a little bit under fifty percent, said they would not support uh, enhanced interrogation or harsh torture measures under any circumstances. Now. A majority does support those under went often or sometimes used when it could be seen as effective. So that seems like a major shift. Well, let's talk about and, a real, a real example of it because the second book is by a man who's tortured in Guantanamo Bay, and he's never been charged with any offence. So it doesn't appear that the information he gave, which he in fact says he made up to stop them torturing, was used mm-hmm. in any actionable fashion. Uh, tell us the story of of this guy briefly, Rebecca. 
So Mohammed Oud Slahi uh, is a Mauritanian electrical engineer who he was uh, educated in Germany. He's from a large family. He was incredibly uh, academically talented and ling linguistically talented as well. And he also, in the early 1990s, um, he was very devout Muslim. He left Germany to join an anti-Soviet Al-Qaeda Al camp. And so he he joined that struggle, but he, he, he left Al-Qaeda while it was turning against the United States and reorient, reorienting itself. And so although he had contacts among those jihadists, he never himself became one, according to, to his story. Uh, but the United States became convinced that because of his travel patterns and because he had been in Germany and because he had he was internationally known, he must be involved in many of the early attacks. And so he was asked to come in. He was arrested in Mauritania. He voluntarily sort of reported, and then he was arrested, and uh, that began 14 years of detainment in on many continents, uh, most of the time spent at Guantanamo. 14 years. And and what he the story that, that you tell in, in the piece is he, he suffered in lots of ways in terms of how he was treated, those verbal abuse, sleep deprivation, those sensory deprivation, those extreme cold. Is it possible, do you think, to draw a line between what constitutes rough treatment in regard to which you can have a debate and torture, or is that not a profitable distinction, do you think? That, I do think that's a, a legitimate question. Uh, in regard to Slahi, um, I'm not sure it's completely relevant. It is true that in the early uh, weeks uh, or the first year of his de detention, when he was in Bagram and he was uh, at Guantanamo initially, he was treated, I would say, roughly, but probably not. None of the... Uh, the extreme techniques were visited on him or during those early those early moments and in, during those years during that time he was he was very defiant he would say it, according to his report and his book is entirely his own report so it's entirely firsthand so he would say things like until you charge me with a crime i will tell you nothing about my motivations my interests and i don't owe you anything and so he was quite defiant but once he was kidnapped one night and donald rumsfeld had behind the scenes um, authorized his uh, subjugation to enhanced interrogation and once he was you know taken out that night he was um, taken into a boat and blindfolded and beaten within an inch of his life and told he was being taken to another country and that no one might, you know, he might never be traceable. And then he underwent a year or more of, you know, torture and constant interrogation and sleep deprivation and sexual humiliation. After that, he did begin to talk. Um, he said he began to talk and talk and talk. He would just knew that the only way he could possibly survive was to talk. Uh, and the more that he talked, the more they became convinced that he was holding things back and that there was more they could find out. And then they could uh, so how long did that situation of torture last? It lasted, I think, about a year and a half. I don't remember the exact, exact dates, but he finally convinced them that he had sort of cooperated and was allowed to return to the... And he also had figured out that he hadn't been shipped to another to another site. He knew that he was still on, in Cuba. But uh, so then he was re reunited with the general community at Gitmo. And, but he ended up staying there over another decade, uh, even after they had presumably decided he was not not dangerous and could not be charged and partly he couldn't be charged because he had been tortured so there's a, i mean the the sort of brutality of it but the sort of the futility of this that they torture him to get information which they then can't use to charge him so they keep him without charge in detention for a decade is kind of extraordinary and there's one there's one uh, detail that you give in the piece his nickname was pillow 
because he received a pillow as a reward for confessing, the label of which, in, in your words, he read over and over as he'd been deprived of books, light and human company for some months. I mean, this is very sophisticated psychological pressure, isn't it? Well, yeah, uh, I think that's true. He, I mean, also, I think what's interesting about Slahi is that he was, he's an unusually uh, sensitive, I guess, human observer. And so, and he also loved to read. So I think getting the pillow was this turning point in his life. And it's perhaps poignant or ironic that he then, people began calling him pillow because he became so attached to this one comfort item that he was allowed when he finally, when his interrogation finally was alleviated. Well, Rebecca, it's a very moving piece, actually, because you, you, you know, little details like that are sort of very, they linger in your mind after you've read them. Uh, so I'm, I'm very grateful to you for, for, for doing it uh, and for joining us now. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The thing I find most extraordinary when we're talking about this, we are talking about Donald Rumsfeld, who we all know. We talk about the United States of America, which is our leading ally, the leading Western country mm. in the world. And we are talking about now. We're talking about the modern world. And yet we could be talking about 18th century France or some other distant period in which human rights and habeas corpus and all the things you kind of associate with civilization weren't in place. It just seems to be extraordinary. The more you hear about Guantanamo Bay, the more kind of extraordinary that it's being done in plain sight in this way. Mm. But they, they sort of siphon it off or outsource it so that they think that the idea being that if you just remove it from the geographical place that we associate with a country, it somehow becomes separate and doesn't almost doesn't exist. It's a, it's a non-place. I mean, just the fact that we know that Rumsfeld authorised this. Yeah. I, and so we know he authorised this. We know they've never charged this guy. She talks about him joining Al-Qaeda when it was anti-Soviet. Mm. Well, for 20 years, the Americans were supporting those exactly. Al-Qaeda people to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. I mean, exactly. It, it, and that was a period in which he was employed. Yeah. which you, he, would, he would have been on the side of the exactly. Americans, putting it crudely yeah. at, at that point. I mean, what happens here, Theo? Do, do we just have to accept this? I just kind of guess it's like everything. You don't think about it very much. And then a piece like this makes you think about it again. And Obama never got rid of Guantanamo Bay in eight years. Mm. Great stain, I think, on his presidential mm. record. But even if he had have stopped it, this is a Western country that's allowed people to be tortured who've not then turned out to be prosecutable. Mm. And is, is, do we just have to shrug our shoulders and say that's the way the world is now? No, but I mean, well, of course not. Uh, but I, what, yeah, what do you do? It's all part of this huge narrative that we're all just tiny, tiny, tiny ants in. The, the, the study that I mentioned before that shows how people's opinion changes depending on where they are and the stresses that they feel that they live under. I find that really, really frightening because things like that and also, I mean, I wonder how implicated pop culture is in all of this as well. I mean, the number of films that have torture scenes in them and that it's always portrayed as the information that is supposedly extracted uh, through torture is always the bit of information that saves the day. It's yeah. the best purest, most important information of them all, Zero Dark Thirty, for example, yeah. that film there. And, and this book seems to suggest the exact opposite, that information exactly, is actually compromised exactly. and destroyed by being... Exactly. I mean, the, the whole premise of it I find absolutely baffling, that it's all predicated on, on a, a relationship between the, the physical, the body, and, and, and the mind, as though it's some part of kind of perverse reflexology. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm really glad to have read this piece, but I, I don't know. And also... Donald Trump was elected on a pro-waterboarding mm. platform. I'm not even joking when I say that. Yeah. Actually, he said, I would waterboard mm. and everyone cheered. I remember, mm. I remember listening to the speech and everyone cheered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Extraordinary. Well, let's move on to Scandinavia, because in many ways, in Western culture, Scandinavia is held up as the paragon, the model of sanity and harmonious living. Every time in Britain, at least, we're confronted by flaws in our prison system or our schooling or our welfare state and so on the cry goes up look how they do it in scandinavia and learn from it tom shippey's reviewed scandinavians by robert ferguson and notes immediately that the popular image of these impossibly blonde northerners is full of contradictions on the one hand denmark norway and sweden must by several measures be the richest happiest and most successful societies the world has ever known on the other, look at the gloom and the misery and the phenomenon of Scandinoir. So what causes this extreme clash of light and darkness? Well, Tom Shippey joins Thea and me to tell us. Tom, how are you doing? Hi, pretty well, thank you. Very good. Uh, you make an excellent point at the beginning of this. We know very little about Scandinavian countries. So I wrote down a list of what I could say off the top of my head, <laughs> which doesn't take long for me to read out. Vikings, obviously. Dane law. Harold Hardrada invading England in 1066. One of Napoleon's generals becoming king of Sweden. Nelson at the Battle of Copenhagen. Kierkegaard and Ibsen and Hugger. Now, I could probably come up with a bit more of push, but not much more. Why do we know so little, do you think, about Scandinavian history? Well, I suppose uh, uh, since uh, Harold Hardrada in 1066, uh, uh, you might say they haven't impinged on us very much. Uh, so uh, we haven't got the relationship with them that we have with the French and the Germans and the Dutch and the Spaniards and so on. So that's, uh, that's one reason. Possibly also their history has been um, uh, rather like themselves, uh, uh, you might say rather introspective. They've been concerned with each other uh, more than with uh, the rest of the world. Of course, that's not completely true, but, it, but it's uh, largely true. Uh, well, there were two battles of Copenhagen, but if you were to ask me um, what was the difference and what year was it, uh, all I could say is, um, well, um, uh, Nelson put the telescope to his blind eye. <laughs> Isn't that what happened? The history has had strange effects on us, which, of course, we don't know about. Uh, one which I always uh, bring up whenever I get the chance is the Prusso-Danish War of 1864. 
um, after which uh, the Germans annexed uh, large, large amounts of, uh, of Danish territory. And when I was uh, wandering around that area uh, 10 years ago, maybe, I came upon all these graveyards with um, gravestones on them with uh, the German Imperial Eagle. And I said, what, what, what's all this for? And they said, well, these are all uh, chaps who were in the, uh, conscripted into the German army in 1914. And uh, were then killed fighting the British on the Somme. Uh, we didn't that. know that, of course, but a lot of the uh, the opposition on the Somme was actually um, Danish. That's they didn't blame us for it, I may say. They blamed Kaiser Wilhelm, quite correctly. And in 1919, another thing which people have forgotten, uh, the um, the boundary was restored, and actually that, those large areas of Denmark became Danish again. But there are still people and I am one of them, who say that the boundary is still in the wrong place. Quite a lot of um, the northernmost part of Germany actually is, is still got a, a minority Danish population, which used to be a majority Danish population. Let's talk about the darkness, because you talk about this in, 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 the, in the piece. You kind of talk about Kierkegaardian angst, and of course yeah. there's the world's most famous sullen student, Hamlet. Yeah. Uh, reading this book in your own knowledge, is there a kind of Scandinavian gloom that exists? Prefer to call it something like um, uh, um, restraint or, uh, or uh, a tendency towards being withdrawn. And I think there are sort of reasons for it. Uh, don't forget, Scandinavia goes an awful long way north into the Arctic Circle. And uh, in the high latitudes, I think you have to um, store your food in the summer and you have to ration it in the winter or you will die. So you can't just say, uh, OK, chaps, let the good times roll. Uh, that's not going to happen. A lot of Icelandic saga is really, I think, uh, uh, not about Viking and so on. It's about hay, because you've got to calculate how much hay you need to get you and your animals uh, through into the spring. And if you calculate wrong, then you are in serious trouble, because your beasts will die and you will have nothing to, uh, to breed from next year. So uh, that kind of uh, wintry calculation has, I think, made, a, made a, a cultural mark. Melancholy is another word that I think you use in the Yes, that's in, right, in and, the and there's a, an argument about that in that uh, some say that this is, uh, you know, like Orientalism, only it's Nordicism. Mm. It's a stereotype which has been uh, forced on them, uh, and in, in our case very largely created by the character of Hamlet. Uh, you know, it is I, he says, Hamlet the Dane. And so we've got this idea that Danes are liable to um, dither. But, of course, that's only one. That's just one play. I find the idea of melancholy quite interesting in terms of, I mean, melancholy was, was always thought to be caused by excess. And it's almost as though the kind of the darker side of, of Scandinavian society is, is a result of excessive freedom or excessive choice or excessive enlightenment. And, and you get this kind of reaction to it. Uh, that's a, a thought that's, as well. And, uh, and another thing, I guess, is it has the reputation of, and I think it really is, uh, a, a very hedonistic society. Um, well, I say it, you know, I mean, I mean, the Scandinavian countries altogether. But actually, there's also a strong, uh, I almost say repressive streak mm. there. And uh, I would also tend to say puritanical streak. I mean, not long ago, uh, they were still um, operating a kind of prohibition on alcohol. There's still really uh, uh, um, quite severe restrictions on it. Uh, but but where it really shows up, and now I'm and now I'm onto the the, the cream noir, you know, the, the Scandinavian criminal stories. Uh, where it really shows up is in the um, feeling about sexual sins coming home to roost, which is a theme 
well, from from way back, but but very strongly marked, for instance, in Ibsen. Yeah. Um, and one of Ferguson's points in his book Scandinavians is that uh, Ibsen uh, uh, kept secret, uh, and it, it remained secret till 40 years after he died, that he'd actually uh, got a servant girl pregnant when he was young and not recognized the son. So he had, in a way, ditched the girl. Uh, and in view of his reputation as a defender of women's rights and so on, this, uh, this didn't look good, uh, which is perhaps where it was suppressed. But it's interesting, Tom, um, that we're talking about a, a, a country where the, the climate, as you say, if you're, if you're locked into a small place where you can't move around very easily, all sorts of repressions will happen. But you're also, yeah. I imagine, yeah, is, that where the, is that where... That's so true is, as well. Uh, I, I remember once um, I was talking to a Danish Jesuit uh, who was actually working in America at the time. And I said, what was he going to do when he, when he went home? And he said, well, um, he said, it will be difficult for me at first, he said, because, you see, De- these are his exact words, I think, Denmark is very tribal, and if you have left the tribe, then they have to check on you before you are allowed back in. So he said he thought he would not be... Well, um, it's not that he'd be suspicious, suspected or anything, but they would kind of um, not be too easy with him until they were sure he was back in the bosom of the tribe. Well, it's a fertile... It's, I mean, you can see why it's such a fertile area for crime writing and for speculation. Anyway, Tom, Tom it's, a, it's a lovely piece. Thank you so much for doing it uh, for us. And uh, it, it made me think again about uh, not only how little I know about Scandinavia, but the, 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 the fertile ground it is for, for further consideration. Yes, yeah. Uh, Tom Sibby, thank you so much for joining us now. Sure, pleasure. Cheers, Tom. It's funny that we've, we've we've sort of we've we've talked about the gloom and the darkness, and yet, social policy-wise, because mm. they spend a lot, they tax high, and they spend a lot on public services, and it's seen as a paragon of that. Mm. That's nothing new, though. I mean, if you think. there's a long history of that if you go back to Mary Wollstonecraft, for example, so late 1700s. She was already celebrating the the free press of Norway and their religious tolerance and uh, their rough equality, I think she called it, because they had this enlightened land distribution. And so that's, you know, we're continuing that now. But there's a piece in, in Tom's piece, he points out how six parties have grouped together into a coalition yeah. to prevent the Democrat Party, the right-wing Democrat Party, from having, from holding sway, from having any seats, which I find quite petrifying because, I mean, if there's one thing we know about censorship, suppression, is it doesn't work. And so I wonder whether this... We, we, we've reached a tipping point with our Scandinavian uh, fetish. And that could be right, because also they are confronted by immigration issues that, mm. that for years they've been open but no one's really taken them up on it and now all of a sudden all of the refugees or, or economic migrants coming out of the Middle East are finding a home in Scandinavia. They find it quite difficult because it's a place of extremes of long mm. winters which is very different to where they're from and the indigenous people are, are, are having to welcome them. Now the, either they'll be very welcoming or the alternative is the, the rise of the right wing as you say. Mm. And the, the, I mean to come back to Hugo just because it's just so topical um, it's, it's very much predicated on a sameness, a cohesion. And so when you then introduce elements which are easy to point at and say, oh, they're different, they don't fit with our aesthetic or ethic or whatever, then things change and, and you know, it's a stress. Yeah, it's, it's a stressor. Fascinating. Well, that's almost all we've got time for this week. Uh, Thea and I must thank Tom Shippey, Rebecca Lemov and Jennifer Howard. Uh, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week with highlights from the TLS and other discussions. This week's paper is now on sale with pieces we've been discussing, plus 
Michael the Dr. Keynes on the pleasures of bookshops, Arnold Hunt on the pleasures of illuminated manuscripts, Laura Freeman on the snobbishness of Cecil Beaton, Adam Mars-Jones on the weirdness of David Lynch, Mark Ford on the unknownness of Delmar Schwartz, <laughs> and Claire Loudon on Dutch short stories, of all things. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions. And do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from the TLS writers, including David Collard on the Kafkaesque way in which we turn authors into adjectives, Jonathan Gibbs celebrating the good sex that appears in literature, and in really incredibly rude piece. Have you read it yet, Thea? Uh, yes, I have. It, and it is. <laughs> I can, it, it, I can it confirm does, that it is. It does require a, a warning, do, not not on a necessarily safe for work. And Lamorna Ash <laughs> on punk typography. And please follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. And as we always say, please do review us on iTunes as well. Until next week, we're going to do more of the same, only a little bit different from Thea and from me. Goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.